Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our third episode of 2023. Oh, time flies. And uh, this time around we thought we would discuss uh, the craft, discuss research, and discuss how we should make policy. And we decided to start with a couple of research papers. Um, yeah. which, is, which sounds very academic, but it's <laughs> going to turn out to be incredibly interesting, so stay tuned. What did, we, what did we look at? Well, well Nicholas, thank you for like, f finding some of these, but I think um, uh, every now and then you start reading things which make you look at a problem through a new lens, and these papers did. And, and I, I guess the, the common theme is, so there's two of them in particular I was looking at, one around automated detection of hate speech, on one around um, algorithmic amplification of certain kinds of content. And these are both things that are front and centre for the regulatory debate. The, the working assumption of the Digital Services Act and the Online Safety Bill is that um, we, we can get better at automated removal of content like hate speech and that we, we the regulators, need to tell people not to amplify bad content by, by getting them to change their algorithms. And these papers sort of caused me to take a step back because essentially the common theme was in both of them to say, look, we can study this stuff and lots of people do study it. Lots of people study automated detection systems. Lots of people study content amplification. They, they create sort of bots that like a bunch of stuff on social media and then see what else they get recommended. But these studies don't provide us the real answers to the real questions. That was the bit that kind of went, oh, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, we're in a sense, there's a risk that we're, we're kind of studying the wrong things, asking the wrong questions, and, and that we will then also regulate for the wrong things because we'll be, uh, in very shorthand, we'll be regulating the machine when actually what we're interested in is human behaviour. And we're making an assumption about the way that the machine shapes human behaviour that may not be true. And it's a very strong assumption, right? We think, in, in some sense, we think that if you redesign the machine, the human patterns that will result will be radically different and will solve for the harm that we've identified. So it's almost regulation through machine. And it brings us back to, there are several different sort of paradigms if you look back in the history of tech policy about this. One of them, of course, is the well-known Lessig thing that we've talked about before, where you regulate through code market norms yep. and law. And sort of where do you choose to put your regulatory intervention and a lot of what we've talked about here or what these papers talk about and we'll link to them in the show notes is essentially regulation through code yes but there's also like a if you go back even further there is a paper by a guy called charles clark who studied early impact of the internet on copyright and he wrote this paper called the answer to the machine is in the machine and that, that sort of became a bit of a formula for people who thought that redesigning the technology, redesigning the artifact as such, is the solution to regulation. So that's sort of one side. You regulate the code, you regulate the, the machine, you redesign the machine, and you get the behavior you want. The other side of that debate, though, seems to be that what we need to do is to look at how humans behave, their habits, our evolved traits, how we react to different things, and what makes us do them. That seems much harder, isn't it? It is, and I think that that's part of it. I mean, again, candidly, if we... Uh, one way to describe it is we're... Well, I was going to say we're lazy, but it's not lazy. But I mean, it's like path of least resistance. In a sense, going and looking at what the machine does. So, I, you know, creating this bot account, liking, you know, 50 items of extremist content 
and then seeing what the machine does, which gives you a bunch more extremist content, is relatively straightforward. And then you make the leap to say, well, that means that somebody who's gone online, who's looked a bit for extremist content, is being radicalised. Now, the reality is, if you look at the humans, and the paper sort of suggests this, is that a human would behave differently. That a human, when they're presented, yes, yes, the machine will give them a bunch more extremist content. But the way that human reacts to that content, if it's very low quality, is to, is to kind of disregard it. And when they disregard it, the machine will learn again and the machine won't give them more of that stuff, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so you know, sort of experience one is you get a bunch of this low value content that's similar to the bad content that you were looking at. But over time, the machine adjusts because the human interacts with the machine in a human way, which yeah. is... They're not mechanisms. They're not like, oh, I wanted extremist content, more extremist content. I'm going to click on it all. It's they actually they work in a much more complicated and sophisticated way. To study that, you actually would have to get a bunch of these people and look at everything they're doing online and study them. And that, for all sorts of reasons, is a lot more expensive, difficult. You know, consent. You would be saying to people, look, I want to study incels. So. You know, can a group of incels agree to allow me to look at all of their online activity to try and work out what's going on, as opposed to querying a machine, which is relatively straightforward. And again, I think a lot of the regulation is precisely aimed at that. You look at it and it says, look, we, we want to give regulators the power to to make the companies hand over data about the machine. Yeah. And... I think the question the paper raises, you know, whether that's not going to be missing a really significant part of the equation, which is the human side of it. Yes, and 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 you say that on on one level it's much harder to study the human, of course, mm. but you can also say, well, even rather coarse-grained study of human beings can get us to understand some fundamental things about human behavior. If we, so so one way to one one very strange lens, but still an interesting one through which we could view misinformation sharing behaviors is to say that they're a little bit like obesity. Yes, um, what happens with obesity is that we have an evolved trait that gets tells us to get more sugar when we get sugar because sugar was rare in the environment in which we evolved so we try to get more sugar and fat now in an environment where sugar and fat are quite abundant that's not great mm. so what we evolved to do misfires and we get obesity now you could argue that for some of the misinformation sharing patterns it's the same because we evolved in an environment where social cohesion was gotten by sharing information about whatever it was it could be false information or true information, but as long as we had the same information, that built our group cohesion really, really well. And it didn't really matter because there was a scarcity of information as well. Now where we have an abundance of information and we no longer live in tribes, but try to organize ourselves in democratic nation states, that same trait misfires, much as the sugar trait misfires. And so what we then can say is that even without studying the obese or those who share misinformation or racist content, we know some basic things about human beings, how they are made up. And maybe that's something that we should apply more to our technology policy studies. Yeah, I think understanding the people. So to your point on the misinformation, I remember at Meta, one of the sort of major tools that was developed as part of the anti-misinformation strategy didn't involve looking at the content at all <laughs> you didn't need to but you looked at people who shared in a particular pattern so people who received some content and very quickly shared it on often that behavior the one you've described it's like this this obesity type behavior it's something where they want the quick 
uh, fix the hit of sharing something on and getting likes and so on. And they were doing that. And if you slowed that down or you reduced the distribution of content that was shared quickly, you had quite a significant effect on, on misinformation without even checking whether or not it was misinformation. It really didn't matter. It was that behaviour. There's some, some association between the behaviour of rapid sharing uh, and then the recipients of the content often wouldn't look at it. So you could look at how frequently and quickly was somebody sharing content and how often were other people engaging with the content being shared. And those those figures uh, uh, could give you a formula that said, OK, but well, that's the kind of thing that we're now going to limit. And if we limit that, it'll have some kind of significant impact. But I say it's without, uh, you know, very different from the notion of we've got to review the content, we've got to see if it's factually correct, and we've got to make sure we stop distributing uh, misinformation-based content. All we're doing now is is sort of intervening to say human beings, one of their traits is to share low-value content, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, there are, there are, for a certain number of people, the sharing act itself is kind of fulfilling and so they're just going to keep sharing content and we can somehow intervene in that and that's what one of the papers show mm. as well where, where you can see in this paper uh, it shows that uh, people who share misinformation also share more true information right. yeah so it's a sharing pattern but that's that's a very different way of approaching the technology policy problem because what you're doing now is looking at the human pattern of behavior and you're asking yourself are, are, are there ways in which we can redesign technology as to make sure that it doesn't misfire the traits that have been evolved over time don't yeah. misfire in this way yeah just go it's starting to look less at the what and more at the why yes and the what is relatively straightforward the why is much more complex if we look at one of the other papers around hate speech uh, and automated removal there is an assumption sort of underlying that, that the, the what, the hate speech is always bad and always needs to be removed and therefore we can have automated systems that go and do that and people study that. There's, there's a lot less sort of uh, uh, thinking or analysis of the why and understanding what's going on there. And I would say, you know, hate speech, a, a whole variety actually of bad content, there are different things going on. There are groups of people using speech as a weapon yeah. So that would be somebody using hate speech to target uh, an affected group directly. So I'm going to use bad language about you, aimed at you, with the intent of making you upset. And that's the sort of classic assumption that underlies hate speech. Or marginalise you or quiet you or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you, yeah. yeah. And, and so that's the assumption that we're making. But then there's all these other uses, the self-referential use of hate speech. You know, which you then need to separate out. So the same words used by a group can 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 be treated very differently because it's not it's different. We do, and if you start taking that down, where people are using it self-referentially, then you as the platform get accused of yes. actually adding to the oppression because you're now stopping <clears throat> people expressing themselves. There's casual use, and I, I hesitate to say that, but there is. There are groups of people who are who use language amongst themselves that yes, it's problematic. Uh, but they're not directing at any third party. And then there's what I call sort of inadvertent exposure to hate speech, which is ju just sort of the, the environment that you're in. And so, again, you're not, you're not a victim of the hate speech, nor are you, you know, yourself using it, but there is a, there's a concern that just by being exposed to it, 
and we've seen this recently with some of the debates around um, editing of books, Roald yes. Dahl's books are in the yeah. news this week. There's a kind of assumption that just having words in the in the general landscape can be harmful and therefore this sort of notion of trying to remove them because uh, those words would be otherwise problematic. So say once we unpick it, <laughs> we're dealing with all sorts of different whys and different effects, different you know uh, uh, impacts that these speech may have. The what is language, words that can be detected in an automated way. Um, and that's where we've tended to focus. And that's where, again, I think the risk is the regulation will focus on that. Instead of root causes that would actually allow you to understand the problem at several, well, in a more nuanced way to your point, but also at a deeper level in some sense. So you talk about why. I think that's important and interesting because what it sort of suggests is that if you want to really do policy well, if you really want to understand policy, and it's, you know, not not all cases this will be true, but if you want to, you need to have a plausible model of causality. How does A cause B, yeah. right? And you need to tease that out from the policy debate. This is, this is sort of important work that often gets overlooked because you get thrown into a debate and the problem is already formulated for you. Uh, so I think it's really hard to get around that because mm. the privilege of formulating the problem, as Swedish writer Lars Gustafsson wrote, is one of the primary political privileges. Once yes. somebody else has formulated the problem, you're stuck in it. Yes. But I think that still trying to tease out what the theory of causality is for any particular policy issue is really important. So, for example, I believe that somebody who sees a hate speech video on YouTube will acquire the views that are espoused in that hate speech. That's yes. a theory of impact. It's incredibly unlikely. That's yeah. not how it works. But if you look at a lot of the proposals and a lot of the debate, that is actually a theory of causality and a plausible mechanism that underlies those proposals. And it's it's really interesting to me that we're not doing this more. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, again, I think it's because it's hard. Because, it, because it's not necessarily that A causes B. So I think, I think you're right. The, the simple version of regulation is A causes B. Therefore, let's have less A. <laughs> yeah. uh, the reality is that A has multiple different effects on different people. Uh, and so a, a on its own, just understanding how much A there is, you know, and sort of assuming this much A means this much B. And in the case, yeah, this much hate speech equals this much uh, violence, effectively yeah. is what we're talking about, intercommunal violence. Reality is it, it means lots of different things to different people in different contexts much, much harder than that simplistic sort of read across. And then when you sort of take it and if you really want to understand it, you've got to look at the whole environment. And so you've got to not just look at what's taking place on a particular platform, but what's taking place on the internet as a whole and beyond the internet, what's taking place in society as a whole and through other media. That is much more difficult. And I say that for me is more like an ethnographic type study. Yeah. It's sitting down, it's getting a group of people you're trying to study uh, to understand, you know, how, how do um, the far right race haters work? Where are they getting their information? Uh, what kind of information is impacting on them? What is it that changes them that makes you know more or it more or less likely that people will sort of join that category? That's that's a much much broader problem than simply saying, well, get rid of the hate speech on platform X, and the race hate has gone from my society, yes. uh, which is sort of the the assumption is almost like the race hate wouldn't be that. I mean, the the platforms are given this incredible power. 
that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure they have, but it's almost like this thing wouldn't exist if it weren't for this platform. There would be no race hate if hate speech content didn't exist. And of course, we know that's not, not the case. <clears throat> that's, that's a sort of... Um, um, if you have a purist attitude, you would say, go for the root cause, understand the problem, and then try to figure out what's happening. Look at a series of idealized cases and ask if it is true. So for misinformation, you could ask is a uh, really interested, committed citizen who wants to find out the truth about an issue, unable to do so, and will that citizen be led to vote in the wrong way or in a way that's not in their interest in a democratic election because of what's on the internet? Mm. And the answer to that question, I think, is blatantly no. If mm. you're that citizen, you're going to so, probably not suffer the effects of misinformation. But then there's another version of this, which is less sort of theoretical, less um, focused on the underlying causal models, which is much more pragmatic is to say that's, that's very true, but regulating people is really, really hard, as yes. you say, so we're going to regulate the machine. And if you, if you sort of, if you for a second were to defend that pragmatic perspective that I think underlies some of this, that I regulate where I can. It's like the story about The Economist, where they yeah. find this economist looking for his keys under a street lamp and then go, what are you doing? I'm looking for my keys. Why are you looking, you know, where you're looking right now? Is that where you dropped them? No, no, I dropped them over there, but there's a light here. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> look at so I'm looking under the light, yeah. right? And, and That's a little bit what we have here. It is, but I think the big risk for me, and I, I'm thinking about this I'm thinking about the online safety bill at the moment, particularly and digging into it, is the big risk is we regulate and then people are disappointed because the regulation doesn't achieve what they thought it was going to achieve because it set itself unrealistic goals. So I think once you parse the problem out and you make your goals more realistic, then you can hope to achieve something. So take a different example, hate speech example, pornography. Access to pornography is quite a big part of the debate. I think it is realistic that we can deal with some aspects of the pornography situation. And the, the, there's one particular aspect which I think is the most realistic, and that is accidental exposure to pornography for, you know, an 11, 12-year-old, 10, 11, 12-year-old. When they're using internet services, I think it's realistic that we can work with the platforms to make sure they don't accidentally get involved, uh, exposed to pornography. There's a lot of complexity behind that around age assurance and so on, but I think that's a realistic goal. I think it is harder, but still possible, to deal with the trolling aspect, which is people deliberately working around systems to push pornography to upset people. And I'm sure we all experienced it during the great lockdown of the Zoom call trolling, <laughs> you know, where somebody has... So, and it's like, oh, that's, a, that's an arms race. And again, it's, it's worth going after because those people are bad people, but what you probably want to do is find some of them and lock them up and make sure that people understand there's a, a price that you will pay if you, you know, do non-consensual uh, explicit imagery, you push that out, or you're, you know, you're you're going on some site and organising with other people to push pornography onto YouTube children's channels, that sort of stuff. That's a different problem, but again, reasonable. The one that's totally unrealistic is the sexually aroused 16-year-old, 17-year-old, who happens to be technically too young, who wants to go and access some pornographic content. You can put a bit more friction in place. <laughs> There's things you can do to make it a little bit harder, but you're not going to achieve the result of stopping them. I mean, no. and again, so if we parse the problem out and we have a regulation that recognises all of these different aspects to a problem and looks at the ones that are highest value, most achievable stopping an 11-year-old accidentally stumbling on porn, uh, 
high value. I think most of us would agree that, you know, we don't want kids to be accidentally inadvertently sexualized in that way and reasonably achievable. It, again, the solution for that might be a very different solution. Uh, and you can have a sort of age assurance tools that enable us to, to try and stop that. Great. And then if that's our goal, the regulation may succeed. If our goal is we want everybody under 18 never to see any porn ever, we're going to fail. Yes. And so that's why I think it's important. And then the whole thing gets discredited. Or we build tools that are aimed at the 16, 17-year-olds, but not really, they're not the optimal tools for stopping the 11, 12-year-old. You know, it's, we build the wrong things because we're looking at the machine and going like, number of impressions of porn rather than really parsing it out and it's it's i mean there's another version of this too which is not that we are disappointed or that we mm. we're sort of let down but that we also just forget what the legislation was supposed to do and then we move on there's there's yeah. a there's a surprising puzzling lack of policy forensics sort of going back and auditing a piece of legislation say what was this piece of legislation set up to do what actually happened and what can we learn from that? So I think it's really interesting to try to do this. It's hard to separate out the causes. Yeah. But if you look at... So one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is the changes that were put in place in copyright um, post the internet becoming a big deal. So we first had the WIPO Copyright Treaty, the 2001 European Directive, and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in 98, I want to say, uh, in the US, that were all intended to control and make sure that copyright moved to the internet in the right way. And then you have the parallel evolution of, say, the music <laughs> delivery on the internet from MP3s to peer-to-peer -peer systems, back to the iPod and on to streaming. And uh, now you can ask the question, is streaming the product of the WIPO copyright treaty in 1996 or not? That's yeah. a hard question because it goes to both the design of technology, lots of DRM legislation in, in both the copyright treaty and in the European and US legislation. But there is also a technological evolution here. Would that have been different? I think it's worthwhile thinking that through because yeah. in some sense, the real use of legislation should be based on cases like that, case hmm. studies where we can say that there is a clear causality present here between what we try to do in policy and the ultimate market outcomes. Yeah. Do you think it is? It is. A, that case you've raised, I think the interesting question is, uh, is that there's a chicken and egg question there, isn't there? Which is, because I think some of the argument against the tough copyright law at the time was people are only doing the illegal stuff because there's no legal option. Exactly. And so, yes, the question is, by getting, by spinning the wheels on dealing with the illegal, did we accelerate or slow down, actually, the other, uh, yeah. the development of the streaming service? I think it's a really interesting question. And it's, you need to go back and look at what people do. You're bringing me back to my favourite subject, which is cookie balance. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and again, just as a reminder, when the European Union was considering the e-privacy directive, the original version said, and we should make sure that people can control in their browsers whether or not cookies are placed on their computers. The, 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 the concern was about online behavioural targeted advertising, that people were going to be tracked with cookies and version one said let people control it in their browsers and then there was a last minute amendment and the driving force behind the amendment said no 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 we can't make people do the work and have to turn on switches in their browsers 
therefore we will make every website in the world offer a choice. And it turned out to be a disaster. I don't know about you, but I look at what my kids do today. They're very privacy conscious. They all use incognito mode in the browser. Yeah. Like literally, literally, that's what they do. And I look at it and go like, they found the solution and Apple has effectively baked it in yeah. to their things. And, and Apple, you know, with a, uh, done more, you know, to, to do not track stuff. That's, 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 that's all come into the browser. And, and you know, that's the similar question, like by legislating for what policymakers thought was a good thing, have they ended up in fact, well, has that resulted in there being more online behavioural advertising for more years because of a bad regulatory choice? And had we just gone for the browser standard straight away, you know, there would have been less behavioural, less of the harm, the online behavioural advertising collection of data, which we wanted to prevent. So that bad choice has taken the wrong direction. So you're right, these choices matter. And the way that you think in all those cases streaming services and copyright law, online behavioral advertising and web browsers, and now bad content uh, and and, uh, stuff that we're going to regulate under safety legislation. The really important thing is to watch what people are doing and ask, you know, again, it's back to studying it. Look at people's actual behavior. Yeah. Uh, Look at how they're browsing the internet, how they're using it. Look at the choice they're making. Talk to them about why they're making those choices and understand which choices work for them. Uh, because that's the way that will eventually go, is the choice that worked for them. And there, there's another aspect of this that I... So, so one thing that I find, uh, if we're going to sort of uh, take some accountability, I think one of the things that we in our profession, our craft in, in public policy, do too little of is uh, to argue for robust processes around regulation writ large. Yes. Because what we end up doing is to find that there's a new legislative proposal and we don't like this article in that legislative proposal, so we suggest another uh, wording of that article and then we go and we fight over the article and we hope to get to something that is good. Um, I think that we would probably be better off as a craft and as a society, frankly, if we spent 20% of our time on arguing for more robust policy analysis in the regulatory process, what the European Union refers to uh, as better regulation, yes. which is always like this stepchild that it gets thrown in and some yeah. poor vice president gets settled with better regulation yeah. and, and you know, it, it rarely comes out to anything else than more impact analysis. And impact analysis is not it. It's, no, no. it's, it's sort of, we know that these are fudged over. You have made fun of the, some of the ones that have been, been launched historically and yeah. they sort of said that it's around $500 to evaluate the yeah. impact overall of the online safety bill for example yeah. so, but but that's not it what we need essentially is to set out audit criteria at the beginning of legislative work and say here are the things that we're going to audit this law for in three to five years time to yeah. see if we make significant change based on this model of impact and causality and harm right if we had spent more time as policy professionals on making sure that that debate how policy is made was more forefront. We might actually be better off. Yeah, right I, or wrong? I think you're right, but I think there's something else that I think. Uh, um, thinking of our profession, we've got to. I have to raise, which is: is there agreement over the objectives? Because is it that we are looking at different different technical ways to get to the common objective, or is the reality that the the tech platforms have a different objective from the regulators? So again. 
you know, when we're talking about the cookie banners versus the browser controls, is that because there is a consensus that we want to limit online behavioral advertising? Or is it that one side, policymakers want to limit it and the other side, platforms don't? And therefore it's very hard. So we're not, and so when platforms say, no, use this technology instead, the policymakers smell a rat and they say, no, no, you're only saying use that technology because it'll be less effective because you haven't actually agreed on the objectives. Uh, and that I think is honestly something we've got to look at. And, it, and this comes through in all the safety stuff. And again, why it's really important to parse this out. If government is coming along saying, I want age verification, there are lots of different ways you can do age verification or age assurance, different language for, for different ways of doing it. Um, is there common agreement? Or are the online services that are being regulated and the regulators agreed that what they're trying to do is the same thing? And if it was, as I described, something like we want to stop 11 and 12 year olds inadvertently accessing pornography, both sides would probably agree on that. And then we can argue about the different tools and we can put one in place and then we can do an assessment and change after two years if that one's not working. Um, but often that baseline conversation hasn't happened where we've actually agreed that what we're talking about is different ways of achieving a shared objective as opposed to having different objectives. Yes. Which... But yes. even when you have different objectives, though, you would benefit from outlining what those objectives are and how you think they should be audited. So yeah. if, if you have, if you, you know, in the extreme early days of the Internet, I think many online companies had the objective of economic growth, you know, yeah. growth of our market, growth of our profit, growth of our companies. And they could have spelled that out and say, we think this is overall good for society. It's going to generate trickle down effects yeah. and it's going to be great for everyone. Right. And then government could say, well, you know, we think we actually need a bit of control over the content. We need to make sure we protect copyright and allow people to make their own decisions when it comes to data and privacy. So you would have different articulated objectives and different audits for them. Mm. You could have a, a sort of rational discussion about that and but one of the reasons that this is not happening is that there is there's no clear institution that does this in the legislative process hmm. there is no clear point in the legislative process where you agree on the objectives to your point yeah and and you can be cynical about this and say and that's because politics is about power and all of this is just a negotiation of how much power each party should have and, you know, in the European U.S. context, it's about how much U.S. companies get to do on a European market. In a national domestic mm. market, it's how much uh, foreign company gets to do with uh, the domestic market. And you can say, I'm, I'm sort of a pure, in this case, you would be a, a Trasimachos from Plato who says yeah. that might is right, right? So yeah. it would go, all politics is about might. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I don't. No. I mean, I, I sympathize with some of that happening. I think it would be naive not to say so. But I do think that there is room for us to argue as a profession for a much more professionalized policy process with that early institution of audits and objectives, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a... Um, so I think that part of the problem is in politics, compromise doesn't sell very well. And so, uh, uh, so I think you put your finger on something quite interesting, which is, yeah, the reality, again, come back to my online behavioral advertising model, there are, there are different objectives there. One is we care about people's privacy and we don't want excessive collection of data. But equally, if they're honest, they would say, and we want publishers 
newspaper publishers that we like to be able to acquire decent revenues from advertising on their websites. And we want businesses to be able to target customers and have cheaper advertising. And targeted advertising is cheaper for a business because they're not wasting money buying the attention of people who don't care about their product. So you put all that together and there's a compromise position which says... You know, we want to we want to probably restrict online behavioural advertising a bit more than today, but we don't want to get rid of it because if we get rid of it, then we damage the newspaper publishers and we damage the small businesses who use it. But politics, that's, that doesn't sell, does it? So you're either all in on one side or all in on the other side. And it's interesting you say this because I've watched the process with something like the online safety bill in the UK, which, as UK legislation is, it was largely drawn up by, you know, professional civil servants working with outside interest groups and experts so you had a process where where um, I think that process does tend towards compromise it's like on the one hand and on the other we're we're trying to balance things up we're not trying to kill the internet we're trying to to use my language regulate it without breaking it bring it into the political domain and you start to get more absolute <laughs> and it's and people say i want to stop all pornography i want to stop all hate speech and not you know i want to limit hate speech but not so much that it destroys the platforms uh, and then well they do actually they, they say i i want to uh, it's almost worse because they throw two absolutes in i want absolute freedom of expression and absolute uh cleanliness from hate speech you know and so they ah, yes. they don't they don't get to the position of saying there's something in between where you're not going to have complete freedom of expression we're going to limit it and we're not going to get rid of all hate speech there's going to be still be some and but that's that's really hard to sell in politics but i think that's the answer that's where there is a consensus point I think in a way, handing over to an independent regulator, part of the logic of that is the hope that the independent regulator, within their remit, will be more balanced than the politicians ever can be. Yeah. And so maybe maybe you could argue then that you're never going to get that initial uh, analysis of what model mm. we have of the world. You're always going to have to rely on enforcement to tease that model out and see where the limits and the balance is to be struck. It seems, I mean, I still think that there is something to be said for investing some of your time, if you're working with public policy, in the yeah. technique of regulation if it's enforcement in the regulator or if it's just the way that this process is set up encouraging something beyond the impact analysis that describes the problem a little bit better perhaps yeah but i i think that's a very long-term investment uh, i mean i think straight. that's absolutely i think the game changes when a a, a re regulated platform is able to say okay policymaker i understand your objective Here's what's realistic, and we tend to rarely fight on that battleground. So, so, so you know, uh, take my age assurance pornography thing for the platform to say, you know, this is what I can do. Uh, uh, I can I can have a pretty good go at getting rid of all the inadvertent access to the porn, um, but I've got this problem with the trolls, and you know they're going to slip through every now and then. But here's some reasonable steps I'm taking to stop it, and. You know, here's why I think that the 16 determined 16, 17 year old probably is going to get around the, the checks that I put in place. But you know, here's enough friction. If they could have that conversation, that much more sophisticated, nuanced conversation with the regulator, I think that would be extraordinarily helpful. And I, I would recommend trying to have that conversation. 
I know why they won't. <laughs> uh, and partly it's the legal risk issue is that we can never confess to any weakness. Uh, yeah. That I think is a real problem. I mean, in the online safety bill, the thing I keep saying that I think is most interesting about it is the idea that you do risk assessments and the risk assessments are shared by platforms with the regulator. Which could be this, right? And they should, they should be this. They right. should be that nuanced, you know, uh, honest appraisal of what can and can't be done and, and trigger a discussion about whether or not that meets the objectives. The fear is they won't be that. They'll be, you know, be holding back because, because I'm being asked to be perfect uh, and therefore I can never admit any imperfections. So I hope they'll be nuanced. You know, when I'm, I'm there as a legislator now and I'm sitting there, uh, I would be happy to say to the platforms, yeah, when we say we want you to ban pornography for underage people, this is what we actually mean. Yes. Uh, I'm willing to say that and hope the platforms come back and say, well, we can do that. But I think that's probably exceptional. I think that uh, yeah. there are more people who are like, no, you know, uh, to your thing about power. Pa mm. You know, we have the mic. When we say ban pornography, just ban pornography. Like not not being nuanced enough to say there's different forms of harm. When we say ban hate speech, ban hate speech. Uh, not being nuanced enough to say, you know, in these contexts, yes. you know, private conversations amongst groups of individuals, th that ban is heavy handed. Even though legislation says you should get rid of it, even though it's a bad thing, that the enforcement is going to be excessively heavy-handed. You know, to have that kind of conversation is really difficult, and and very important because you are sort of striking balances that will that will affect society down the line quite yeah. a lot. I think, yeah. and so it's it's interesting. I think for for yeah. a lot of the discussions that we're having about online hate speech or online speech generally, um, the kinds of mental models that we adopt um, really matter. So there's yeah. this, we, we discussed this earlier, this, bo this book from 1999 by a guy called James Slevin that's about mm -hmm. the internet and sociology. And he, he says that most of the fights that we'll see around the internet in the future will boil down to the internet existing somewhere on the spectrum between the telephone and the yes. TV. And we have to figure out where it is and we have to do so quite openly. I find that perspective really helpful because in some way you don't want to regulate or at least I think we currently believe that it's a bit heavy handed to regulate the telephone call. Yes. But on the other hand, we're quite in agreement on the fact that you do not get to broadcast you know, racist hate speech, for example, on public television. Yeah. So those kinds of mental models, if teased out early in the process, if you sort of find some common idea of what this thing is, some yeah. social models, should be really helpful. And I think it's it's something that would be interesting for us to spend more time on as, as we as we progress sort of into more technology regulation down yeah. the road. I think, I think you're right, because we bandy around slogans. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think during the debate we had in the online safety bill, there was a, uh, a, a kind of colourful member of the House of Lords who sort of popped up and said, um, you know, I normally support the government, but when the government stands up and says they want to make the United Kingdom the safest place in the world for the internet... Um, he goes, I disagree. The safest place in the world for the internet is China. <laughs> and I don't want to be like China. And to, but to your point, there are countries in the world where your telephone calls are not private. Yeah. And, and so, yes, we've got this technology that is both telephone television in, in certainly the United Kingdom and in Western Europe. We accept reasonable controls over television, but again, fewer than in China, but 
controls that mean that overt hate speech and things would not be allowed. And actually we've extended that into all forms of online video as well. But we have very, very clear restrictions on when government can listen into your telephone calls and what they can do with that. And yet here we have a technology that's both. (laughs) And so I will be in a private group with my friends on an online platform. And yet, you know, I might be the kind of person who uses racist language in that private group. And yes, the platform could detect it. And yes, they could do something about it. But should they? Uh, And I think China... Yes. Well, uh, UK? No. <laughs> you know, that's a difference. So, but that's quite a hard thing. Again, it's a compromise position to sell, you know. Well, you also have to understand human behavior and to realize that if you start regulating television really, really hard, what happens is a displacement effect into telephony. Right? Yeah. So you end up in a situation where if you regulate uh, online content, you end up with these smaller circles, networks that are harder to both interject into and sort of try to get people to see another perspective and to monitor. So again, we come back to human behavior as the key thing to understand. Because that's the other thing, right? When you regulate the machine, when your view is that the answer to the machine is in the machine, you get a second order effect that is a shift in human behavior. Yes. So this is, again, if we go back to our music example, when you started to sue the internet providers because people put up MP3 files on their web servers, uh, what happened almost immediately was that, and they were off-boarded and banned yeah. and all kinds of things, was that you saw the development of Napster. And then you attacked Napster and second-order human behavior change. You got peer-to-peer in Casa and LimeWire. And you started to attack them and then you got BitTorrent. And so there's like a human behavioral response that leads to new technology and new behavioral patterns all the time. So unless you're regulating for the human behavior, you're likely to just get a new technological problem and a new behavioral problem down the road. Yes, and so it's regulating for the human behavior and being realistic about how far you can change that behavior and setting realistic goals for the changing of that behavior. Because you're, you're right, we, we can set completely unrealistic goals and we say by fixing the machine, we fix everything. You can see... As the internet broadly has become more uh, managed and controlled, you see the dark web develop as a response to that. And and yes, you can see a, a world in which all of the regulation we're doing now stimulates the growth of new forms of uh, connectivity and connection that are outside of that framework completely and are unregulable. That the, the UK and the European regulators can't get to, and then we'll be passing new laws to chase after that. So I think there's something real, there's something about being really honest, realistic about, as a society, what we're trying to do. Yes. And then treating it as a whole society problem of which the internet is part. So. This also seems to have implications for the lifespan of regulation. Because if you look at regulation that targets mostly human behaviour... Um, uh, tort law comes to mind. Mm. You know, somebody did something, they should have expected that to be a really bad thing and to have really bad effects. And so we're going to hold them liable for that particular thing they did. That's a that's sort of only human yeah. behavior. I haven't mentioned any technology in yeah. that. It's just a behavior. Whatever technology you use, if you behave in that way. It's been around since the Roman days, yeah. right? Yes. This is tort law. Yeah. It's been around. And it's, it's, it's largely almost unchanged. When yeah. we talk about 
you know, casos, culpa, when we talk about dolos, when we talk yeah. about these Latin categories of how intentional you were and the harm you mm. created, these are purely uh, regulations around human beings. Mm. Now, if you look at the online safety bill or if you look at the, the DSA, etc., uh, there's a lot of technical components in there. There's a lot of technical descriptions. What do you think the lifespan is of the online safety bill in these? Do you think they'll be around in 10 years? Oof. I, um, so I think they will, um, but how important they are, I think, may change. So in the, I mean, I think there will be some form of regulation of these technologies, um, but I just wonder whether the technologies will have the same place in society and that we won't be then thinking about other things that need regulating. Won't it feel a little bit like, you know, telegraph telegraphy uh, regulation? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the change could be really fast. What What do you think are the elements that will survive if you if you look at the regulation today? Yeah, so I, th I think... Um, actually, to your point about tort law, so, so there's a really interesting piece of law in the UK that... Um, was designed to stop nuisance telephone calls and has sort of been rolled over onto the internet because that the, the basic principle is if you communicate with another person intending to cause harm and distress, then that's that's the crime. <laughs> and there are some elements actually of online safety bill that, that take that forward and sort of, and revise it and update it. So I think where you have something that is based on intent, I think that uh, it, it absolutely will roll over and survive. I think it's the n detailed, nerdy regulation of the way in which platforms work that I think risks becoming out of date. Um, and so already you look at it, there's a lot of sort of focus on we, we want to be able to tell you how to do your algorithms and things like that. Now, what will that mean in a world where, you know, if I have a personal agent powered by fabulous AI that <laughs> scours internet platforms and gives me the content I want, which is very realistic. In or a even publishes time. content on your behalf. Oh, but yeah, uh, exactly. It could do the whole thing. The, the, uh, I can be represented on the internet by a machine that is powerful, but w which is my machine. It doesn't belong to, you know, Meta or Google or anybody like this anymore. They may have helped create it, but uh, in a sense, I'm the controlling mind for my own machine what does that mean for regulation so i think there's going to be those are the kind of shifts that uh, and still when they talk about future proofing they're saying well this will apply to the metaverse uh yeah <laughs> but i think you know the you know 10 15 years time uh, metaverse concept may be sort of, sort of gone i think the really interesting ones are if we look at what's happened in terms of control of the information environment it's gone from well, originally it was like the church. <laughs> and then it's gone, you know, through printing to the publishers, originally a very small set to a larger set of publishers, now to uh, millions and millions of people publishing through platforms. Next stage of evolution, maybe that we don't need the platforms. And also so, that publishing and texts are written by, for example, artificial intelligence. And so that the content that you're regulating is not intentionally created by a human being who can be held responsible for it. But it might be created by one or several AIs in the network that in some way put this content up, right it, or wrong. Uh, yes, exactly. So we're in a, we're in a world where if the, the thing that you are trying to regulate, which is platforms... Uh, VLOPs, Category 1, Service for all of that stuff, those things that you are trying to regulate and no longer have the same role that they used to have. And you're right, the content, the assumption is it's 
people pushing out content. Yeah. It's Russian bots pushing out misinformation, but those bots have a person behind them. What happens when they're free floating <laughs> and not, yeah, they're, they're not, they're my bots because I've yeah. created them because I want to uh, tell the world about something. You know, once, once we move into that world, which I think is the world of 10, 15 years time, a lot of the regulatory concepts we're using today will not apply. The thing that uh, would roll over is anything that relates to human behavior. Which brings us back to the research point, right? That yeah. Human behavior is also um, somewhat inert in the sense that it doesn't change as fast as technology. No. It belongs to a much slower evolutionary biological pace layer, if you will. And so it makes a lot of sense to actually bring this back to the study of human behavior with tools and technologies over time and try to find ways of expressing how you would regulate that as generically as possible around that behavior because that then survives. So you don't have to have you know, regulation that is updated every five years because the technology paradigm has shifted in this or that way. I think that's right. But I think where you, where you would want to regu the regulate the technology is where um, it has sort of particularly outsized effects on society. It creates unfairness. It creates all sorts of things that are happening. You're right, the, the humans are the same, uh, but technology in a free world, we keep going back to things like cryptocurrency and yes. stuff like that. You know, there's something in cryptocurrencies that um, potentially could result in sort of significant unfairness, damage to society, economic damage to individuals that, that is sort of beyond their control, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. It's outside of them. And so I think for regulators to focus on things like that, things that are causing or potentially sort of can cause significant harms that you would then want to redress and get in earlier on those makes perfect sense to me but a lot of the stuff that we are worried about which is communication those are the ones you know interpersonal communication me publishing my views on things sharing views with other people in that space we're absolutely talking about human behavior things that yeah. are as old as the hills and the health of democracy and the health of the deliberative process etc now yeah. one counter argument uh, to to sort of uh, really get to the bottom of this one thing you could say if you wanted is that regulation is not to address harms which is what we've been assuming all the time it's not to achieve a state in which a certain behavior is where it's not available to people. But what regulation is for, or a large function of regulation, is to negotiate a new technology as it's introduced. So what we're doing is that we're learning about the technology in the regulatory process. Mm. We're talking about it, we're involving people in that process, and the regulation that comes out at the end is not as material as the process. So it's not the regulation, it's actually the regulatory process that holds the, democra the democratic and social value here. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't sort of skimp on that and we shouldn't worry about short lifespans for regulation because that conversation is really, really important. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And I think often actually, if we look at the US, that's where the US ends up. They have the debate, but because their Congress is... Gridlocked. Gridlocked. They don't end up with a regulation. But as a result of the debate, lots of agreements are made and things change. So I think you're absolutely right that, that a lot of the value is in the debate and society having a conversation about a technology. Yes. And there's a question, I mean, again, arguably that's where we are with crypto today, that we're in a place where we're having that societal conversation. We haven't sort of consummated it with a piece of regulation and there's still an open question until we get there. Um, we've talked about this in terms of the sequencing with social media. I think with their 
now that yes. the conversation resulted in saying there must be regulation, but some question around that search again some regulation around search although i'd argue that potentially i think that's a lot less impactful um if you look at the obligations that are put on search there i think they uh, most of what people want search the big search engines have already done Uh, so they're sort of nearly at the right place anyway through that conversation rather than the the conversation where the sort of the regulatory legal impetus spills over into norms and markets yeah. to use Lessig's model, right? Yeah. Where you might not get a law, but the effects you have on norms, markets, and to some extent code is enough just yeah. because you have the regulatory discussion, which yes. is interesting too. So yeah. so uh, it's a complex area, but would surely do better from uh, from a little bit more focus on human beings and a little bit less on the machine. I think it is. And, and again, just uh, yeah, leaving that sort of thought that I have seen some studies which I think are the most interesting ones, where where um, researchers are able to get hold of, for example, people's entire weblogs of everything they were doing online, how long they spend on different websites and things. The most intrusive uh, uh, kind of research you can do, but I think in many ways the most valuable, which allows you actually to see, say, that whole picture of what people are doing and not just make assumptions about how they'll behave when exposed to certain things, but actually... You know, being able to to uh, see, un- you know, under the hood, what that person was doing. So, if you wanted to understand, did their voting behavior change during an election? Seeing everything they're exposed to, seeing all the TV they're watching, everything they're the exposed to, the people they talk to, their socioeconomic exactly. background, it's, how they've, you yeah. know, the events that has happened to them in the last five years. Yeah, and you then you get a picture rather than this thing was on social media. It, uh, the machine tells me it was shown this number of times. These people voted this way, therefore, QED. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So that again, yeah, so it's the correlation is not causation. Causation is not true. causation. That's Absolutely. Well, we can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. It's and a machine. It's a machine. It's on. Oh, the machine is there, yeah. but the human being it roves around there it's somewhere. Yeah. It's very good. Thank you for listening, and speak more soon. Thank you.